Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. I wanted to do this morning was spend a little bit of time talking around the ascension of Jesus. And it's one of those things that I'm not sure we've heard a lot of messages on or we've spent a lot of time thinking about. But this past Thursday, I think I shared a brief video on on WhatsApp around Thursday was Ascension Day. 40 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And I'm not really sure why, but at least in my own Christian experience, I haven't heard many people talk about the ascension or spend a lot of time digging into that. And I don't know why it doesn't get a whole lot of attention in some of the Western charismatic church circles, um, because it is more widely celebrated in other conservative circles. It's known as the Feast of Ascension, and it's actually a public holiday in a whole lot of countries. There's a whole bunch of countries in Europe, France, Germany, Belgium, Norway, Sweden, that It's a public holiday there, as well as Indonesia and Vanuatu, where Sarah and I were recently. It's a public holiday there, and it's something that is is celebrated across the country. And And I wonder why, and I don't necessarily have the answer, but why it isn't celebrated as much in some of the the circles that perhaps we've journeyed through. Because for me, particularly preparing this over the last week or so, I've been genuinely really struck and really impacted by the power of the ascension of Jesus. And all that that has done for us as believers, it's in some ways totally transformed my perspective and reignited faith and a passion and a hope in me in a way that um, really I wasn't expecting at all. And I feel like it's a really important celebration and one that I want to continue to celebrate in our own lives and align my perspective with all that happened when Jesus ascended into heaven. And in some ways, I feel like this is the kind of the final part to the the teaching on the blood of Jesus that we went through leading into Easter. We had those three weeks where we talked about the blood of Jesus and all that that has made available for us in soul, body and spirit. We talked about the power of the cross, all that Christ accomplished through his resurrection. But it wasn't until 40 days later when he ascended into heaven that his work was fully and finally complete. And Jesus himself said this to, to Mary Magdalene right after he was resurrected from the dead. John 20, 17. He turns to Mary Magdalene and says, do not hold me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, I've still got more work to do. There's still another step to play out here. And ascension, I feel like, is really the the last piece of the Easter story. It's the final piece of the Easter story. Because Easter didn't stop with a cross on Good Friday. It's not actually about an empty tomb either. Easter ultimately is about what is now an occupied throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That really is the the final part of the Easter story. And I feel like in my own walk with the Lord, and I'm not sure whether you feel like this, perhaps in different ways, probably been stuck at the cross or perhaps stuck at the resurrection and haven't actually been able to see the full picture of all that Christ has done and see all of the pieces of the puzzle begin to come together. And I do feel like it's important for us to broaden our understanding, expand our revelation in order to be able to live in the fullness of all that Christ has done 
for us. And it is a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle in making sure that, you know, the, the first couple of pieces of the cross and the tomb are married with the piece of the ascension so that we can begin to see the bigger picture. And look, I do like doing jigsaw puzzles. Bill and Alison would know this. Thomas would probably know this as well. Part of our kind of family tradition when we go down to Torquay in January is we always bring at least one jigsaw puzzle to do. And I don't know, I feel like it often plays out the same way every year. I get really sucked into the jigsaw. Sarah's annoyed because I'm spending too much time doing the jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> but, and I try to kind of tone that down. And we, I think we've, we've managed to kind of work through some of that over the years. But I do enjoy doing jigsaw puzzles. That's part of, I don't know, just relaxing and being able to switch off. Um, and I do feel like in many ways, you know, the, the bigger picture of what Jesus and his blood has accomplished for us we need to be able to have the final piece of the ascension to be able to put that all together and understand the bigger picture. And so before we jump into the scripture, I do want to say that really, you know, I'm personally still growing in my own revelation and understanding of the ascension of Jesus and all that this has done. And so this, I feel like, is kind of just the beginning and perhaps, you know, it might turn into multiple parts of a, of a series at some point. But this, in many ways, is just beginning to unpack what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven and beginning to look at what that means for us. But there's so many more scripture that we're not going to cover this morning that speak into the power and the reality of, of the ascension and all that was accomplished there. But turning to Acts chapter 1 as our starting place for the journey we're going to go on. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, To these men he showed himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs and unquestionable demonstrations, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and talking to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. So this is telling us that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and many others for a period of 40 days. And that's why you have the Ascension Day coming this Thursday, just past 40 days after Easter Sunday. And then he goes on to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 9, it says, After he had said these things, he was caught up as they looked on, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. Talking about Jesus ascending into heaven. And the ascension is also described in Luke 24 from verse 50. It says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, fully understanding that he lives and that he is the Son of God. And they were continually in the temple, blessing and praising God. So there's these two accounts of Jesus ascending up into heaven. A cloud coming and taking him up into heaven. And as I was digging into this, I find it amazing the way Scripture just weaves the story together, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Just like Jesus' crucifixion is recounted in amazing detail in the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, and we looked at that when we were talking about all that the blood of Jesus has accomplished for us. So too the ascension is prophesied by Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 7. Depending on the commentary you might read, there might be some slightly different views of, of this passage, but when you read it, I feel like it so clearly speaks of Jesus ascending into heaven. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And again, this was prophesied over 300 years before Jesus was even born. 
And it's amazing. John, Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14 says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Just as we heard Acts chapter 1, talking about a cloud coming and Jesus ascending. And it says, he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. What a clear picture of Jesus ascending in the cloud. And then it goes on. And to him, the Messiah was given dominion, supreme authority, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and speakers of every language should serve and worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And just in these couple of verses, we begin to get a bit of a glimpse of of what happened after Jesus left those disciples. We begin to also see some of the significance and the importance of what happened in and around the ascension. See here, Jesus, described as the Son of Man, comes up in a cloud to the Ancient of Days. And many of you might be familiar, the Ancient of Days is a title that's used for God, or God the Father. And then, as he's presented before God, God then gives him everlasting dominion, eternal glory, and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. There's this powerful, powerful exchange that happens in that moment. And we'll dig into that in a moment. So when we piece this together with the Easter story, yes, the cross of Christ was history defining and it broke the curse of sin and death. And we would still be lost if it wasn't for the cross of Christ. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus ushered in a whole new creation. We are now born again, spirit filled believers. And that was only possible through the resurrection of the dead. But ultimately, the dominion and the glory and the authority that came in Jesus establishing his kingdom was through the ascension. And I can't help but think, you know, perhaps this moment here in the throne room where God the Father and Jesus the Son was almost the most significant of all of the parts of the Easter story. This was the culmination, the climax of all that had happened leading up to this Moment, And so I wanted to unpack what took place here together. And so beginning with the first reference of, of Jesus here, and I find this really interesting that Jesus is described as the son of man in Daniel 7 there. Of course, Jesus always was and always will be fully God and fully man. But this title here tells me that he ascended into heaven in his humanity. He didn't leave his humanity behind, but he took his humanity with him when he ascended into heaven. And that in itself is a really powerful thought that at the beginning of his time on earth, he descended from heaven and was born as the son of God here on earth. But at the end of his time, he ascended back into the throne room as the son of man. He came from heaven to earth as the son of God, but he went from earth back up to heaven as the son of man, as the substitutionary atonement for all of humanity, the sacrifice for humanity. You know, the the phrase that, that came to me was that Jesus brought God to earth through his birth, but he brought man to heaven through his ascension. He brought God to earth through his birth, but he brought man to heaven through his ascension. Thank you, Jesus. And so Jesus as a man, entered into the very throne room of heaven, the holy of holies, where God himself was seated, where the very presence of God dwells. And 
if we know a bit about the Old Testament law, we know that there were all sorts of rules and regulations and restrictions about a man being able to enter into the presence of God, being able to enter into the holy of holies, the most holy place. Hebrews talks about this, Hebrews 9 verse 6. And it says, but into the second inner tabernacle, the holy of holies. And this is talking about the tabernacle that was here on earth for the Israelites. Only the high priest enters and then only once a year and never without bringing a sacrifice of blood, which he offers as a substitutionary atonement for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So not anybody could just walk into the presence of God. There was the veil and actually there were two curtains, right? You kind of went into the holy place and the most holy place and the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt. Only the high priest could enter in and only once a year. And he would go in one day a year and that day was called the Day of Atonement. And it's described in Leviticus 16. And I'm just going to read this because we're going to look at how amazing the earthly tabernacle and the things that took place there were really just type and shadow for what took place when Jesus ascended into heaven. So Leviticus 16 from verse 11, it says, Aaron shall present the bull as the sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall kill the bull as the sin offering for himself. He shall take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the east side of the mercy seat. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the sins of the people, and bring its blood within the veil into the most holy place and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness and the transgressions of the Israelites for all their sins. And so just to help paint the picture here of of what took place in, in the Old Testament tabernacle behind the veil in the most holy place, there was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. And many of you might be familiar with that term, but effectively it was a it was a golden chest. And inside that chest, there was manna from when God provided for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. There was the the rod of Aaron that budded or or sprouted. The stone tablets that were inscribed with the Ten Commandments, they were inside this golden chest. And the, the lid or the cover on top of this golden chest was what was called the mercy seat, the cover on top of the golden chest. And and I feel like it's you know called the mercy seat because ultimately that's where God's presence would sit. And in the Old Testament, he appeared in the form of a cloud. So the presence of God would sit above the Ark of the Covenant, would sit on the, the mercy seat. And so what Leviticus 16 is is saying is that once a year, there had to be a sacrifice, an offering, and the blood of that sacrifice then had to be brought behind the veil into the most holy place and then sprinkled on the mercy seat. And that's how they would atone for the sins of the Israelites for those 12 months. Does that make sense? Once a year, they had to give an offering, a bull, a goat, and then... The high priest brought the blood of that sacrifice behind the veil and sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat in order to make atonement for the sins of the Israelites. And so with with that kind of picture in mind, let's go back to Jesus ascending into the throne room of heaven. And in Hebrews 9, 23 to 24, it says, Therefore it was necessary for the earthly copies 
of the heavenly things to be cleansed with these. That's speaking about it was necessary for the earthly tabernacle to be cleansed with the sacrifice of bulls and goats. But the heavenly things themselves required far better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. So hopefully you're beginning to see that the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle once a year, sprinkling the blood of a bull or a goat on the mercy seat was was an earthly type or a shadow or a copy of what Christ did when he ascended into heaven and was presented before God. I don't know, I thought about this as I was kind of making some notes. It reminded me of, you know, you you buy a fake Rolex at some street market in Bali or wherever for, for 15 bucks compared to buying a $50,000 Rolex from the, from the genuine Rolex shop, right? And it's kind of comparing the, the fake, the copy, the imitation with, with the real thing. They might look the same on the surface, but one really is a copy or an imitation. And the imitation doesn't cost anywhere near as much in the same way that sacrificing a bull doesn't cost as much as Jesus giving up his life. It doesn't last as long in the same way that the bull and the goat have to be represented every single year to make atonement for their sins compared to the genuine Rolex or the genuine sacrifice of Christ that paid for our eternal redemption. And so being able to compare the two and understand the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. It came at a much higher cost. And in the same way that if you bought a $50,000 Rolex, it probably would be a lifetime generational purchase that goes beyond just yourself. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, When he was presented before God, this was him coming into the very throne room of heaven. And instead of God appearing in a cloud over a golden box, it was God himself seated upon the throne. Right? Revelation 4 talks about lightning shooting out of the throne, the sound of thunder around, rainbows around. Jesus came into the very throne room and it wasn't just a cloud like the high priest going behind a veil, but it was God himself seated upon the throne in heaven. And instead of coming to present the sacrifice of goats or bulls or calves, Jesus comes before God and he presents himself. He presents himself and his own blood. This is what I have to offer, Father. This is what I have to offer my broken body, my own blood, that was spilt. And instead of just making a temporary atonement to cover the sins of the Israelites for 12 months, as he sprinkled his blood on the throne of heaven, it was an eternal offering that would cleanse us from sin for all eternity. Again, Hebrews 9, and I encourage you to spend time reading through Hebrews 9 and 10 in your, in your own space, in your own way. Hebrews 9 speaks about this and it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not a part of this material creation. He went once for all into the holy place, the holy of holies of heaven, into the presence of God, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, having obtained and secured eternal redemption. That's speaking about what happened when Christ ascended into heaven. 
For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a burnt heifer is sufficient for the cleansing of the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Holy Spirit willingly offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the ever-living God? As I said at the beginning, I feel like my whole perspective has shifted through this, that these references to offering and blood, so often I feel like I've been stuck at the cross and I thought it was... Jesus offering himself on the cross or the blood spilt on the cross. But actually there was another offering where he offered himself and presented himself before the father in the throne room of heaven. And this is clearly talking about that because it talks about the sprinkling. There was no sprinkling of blood at the cross. It was the sprinkling of the blood in the throne room of heaven. And and I see here that this moment when Jesus presents himself before God, the father is, is, is the climax of his work. It's the fulfillment of the work of Christ. Perhaps the greatest victory of all. This is the culmination of the plan of God right from the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. This all culminates with Jesus standing before the throne and presenting himself and him his blood as an offering for the sins of mankind. And look, I don't know how theologically correct this is, but the picture that I get in my head is kind of Jesus entering into the throne room, right? He ascends up, leaves the disciples in a cloud and he appears before the throne of heaven. And as he begins to walk in, I imagine the living creatures and the angels and the elders all begin to go quiet and watch to see what's going to happen. As he takes step by step, getting closer to the throne of God, all of them are looking, watching, waiting, Is what he's going to present, is that going to be enough? Jesus approaches the throne and with his own blood in his hands, he begins to sprinkle it before God the Father. Just as the high priest did in the old covenant, he sprinkles it on the throne and sprinkles it before the throne. And all of heaven, all of the eyes of the living creatures, if you know your theology, they're full of eyes, right? So there would have been a lot of eyes turning towards God the Father. How is he going to respond? Is that offering enough? And then God the Father turns to his son and crowns him with glory and honor and says that his offering is enough. He begins to give him all authority, all dominion, all power in heaven and in earth. He appoints him as the ruler and the supreme head over the church. He gets him to sit down at the right hand of the father. That sprinkling of the blood, the blood that he presents before the father. God responds and says, yes, you are worthy of all dominion, all power in heaven and on earth. Come, son, take your rightful place seated at my right hand. And again, there's a number of places in scripture that speak about this. Ephesians 1 is just one of them from verse 19 to 21. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And it's exactly that transfer of dominion and power and authority that Daniel prophesied in in Daniel chapter 7. And as God the Father responds to the offering of Jesus and his blood and gives him the crown of glory and honor and invites him to take his seat at the right hand 
of the Father. I imagine that in that moment, all of heaven erupts. There's shouting, there's trumpets blasting, there's lightning flashing, there's singing, there's worship, there's angels and elders and everyone bowing down before the throne. I imagine a scene similar to what is in Revelation 5. I think ultimately Revelation 5, I believe, is something that's still to come. But I imagine a scene very, very similar. And it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the voice of the living creatures and the elders. And they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy and deserving is the Lamb that was sacrificed to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I just can picture it in my own head. As Jesus presents himself and God the Father gives him the dominion and the glory and the honour that all of heaven erupts and says, Worthy is the Lamb that was sacrificed to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And it continues Revelation 5. And I heard every created thing that is in heaven or on earth or under the earth or on the sea and everything that is in them saying together to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. This moment here was the coronation of King Jesus. This was when he was coronated as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He received his eternal crown of glory and honour. We obviously had the coronation of King Charles III, I think it is, um, a few weeks ago. And yeah, that was an extravagant celebration. I don't know if you talk to my grandma, she reckons it went for a little bit too long and was a bit boring, but <laughs> it was an extravagant celebration, the coronation of a king. But I can't help but think that that would have been nothing compared to what took place when Jesus was coronated as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on that day when he ascended into heaven. And so having said all that, and taken us on a journey through what took place. What, what does that actually mean for our lives as believers? What does that mean for us living our faith day to day? Hebrews 10, and as I said, there's so much in Hebrews 9 and 10 that unpacks this. Hebrews 10 from verse 12, and it says, Whereas Christ, having offered the one sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice of himself for the sins of For all time, he sat down, signifying the completion of atonement for sin at the right hand of God, the position of honour. Again, I just feel like so often I've I've seen the words of sacrifice and offering through the realm of the cross rather than the offering that he presented before God the Father in heaven. And then it says, for by the one offering, meaning Jesus presenting himself and his blood before the throne of heaven, He has perfected forever and completely cleansed those who are being sanctified, bringing each believer to spiritual completion and maturity. And now where there is absolute forgiveness and complete cancellation of the penalty of these things, there is no longer any offering to be made to atone for sin. They're pretty big statements and amazing truth for us that because of what Christ accomplished When he ascended into heaven, we have been perfected forever and completely cleansed. There is absolute forgiveness and complete cancellation of the penalty of our sins. There's no longer any offering to be made to atone for sin. Because of what Christ accomplished at the ascension, we are forever righteous. We are completely cleansed. 
We have absolute forgiveness. We have complete cancellation of the penalty of the sin that we have committed. All because of the offering of Jesus at the throne of heaven. And as I was reflecting on this, I was struck that it tells us here, there is no longer any offering to be made to atone for sin. You know, while perhaps we might never think that, you know, we need to sacrifice another bull or sacrifice another goat to to deal with our sins. I dare say we might never have, have felt like we needed to do that. There are sometimes perhaps other more subtle ways where we can fall into the lie of thinking that perhaps we need to provide another offering or do a little bit more to atone for the sins that we've committed. I wonder if we've ever felt like we need to somehow put in a great performance or perform in a particular way to make up for mistakes that we've made or things that have happened in the past. This is saying, no, there's no longer any offering to be made to atone for sin. We feel like sometimes we need to offer up striving or serving and busyness in religious activity to prove to God that we're good enough or whatever it might be. On the flip side, I think perhaps at times we've accepted struggles or suffering that we shouldn't because in some ways we feel like that's part of the price we have to pay for the sins that we've committed. And in some way that's us offering something back to atone for the mistakes that we've made. But no, no, there is no longer any offering to be made for the sins that we've committed because of what Christ has done. It was a once for all time offering and sacrifice. So all of those thoughts, perhaps I can see some nods that And I'm the same. I've wrestled with this. But those mindsets, those thoughts, that type of thinking is a lie. There is no longer any offering that we need to make. Because the blood of Jesus sprinkled on the mercy seat was enough to cleanse and forgive us forever. And and the other beautiful thing about that truth is that if we've been completely cleansed, then there's no longer any offering to be made to atone for our sins. Then we can come boldly into the throne room of God. Knowing that we've been forgiven, knowing that we've been redeemed, we can come into the very presence of God because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. And again, I in my mind, had often thought that that was talking about the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross. But the reason we can come boldly into heaven's most holy place is because his blood is still there, sprinkled before the mercy seat, speaking forgiveness, speaking redemption, speaking acceptance. That's why we can come boldly into the most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. It says, by his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. What an awesome passage linking in what this means for us that there is an ability to go right into the presence of God, that we are able to trust him in a way that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to. There is a hope. There is a confidence in his promises because we have been sprinkled. We have been atoned through what Christ did in 
the throne room of heaven all those years ago. And so at its heart, I think the ascension of Jesus, one of the greatest things that it accomplished for us is this unrestricted, unlimited access into the most holy place of heaven, that we're able to come boldly into the throne room of God. Right, that passage in Hebrews 10 talked about how Jesus' death kind of made a new life-giving way. I think about it like Jesus' death opened the door, but it's actually his ascension and what he did before the throne of heaven that enables us to walk through that door and enter into the very presence of God. Of course, we needed him to die and the veil to be torn and opened the way, but it was his offering before the throne of heaven that gave us the confidence and the boldness to walk through that door into the very presence of God. And so I wonder whether perhaps, and again, I feel like I'm preaching to myself in a lot of ways, that if we've ever had feelings or thoughts where, you know, we're thinking things like, well, I don't think God would want to hear from me right now, or I'm not worthy to go into the presence of God. I've messed up or I've done this. I'm not qualified. I'm not accepted. I'm not good enough. All of these thoughts that can stop us from going into the very presence of God. One of the things that we can do if those thoughts or those things ever tried to come into our minds, we can break those lies down by reminding ourselves of the blood of Jesus that was sprinkled before the mercy seat of heaven. Because Hebrews 12, 24, and we've spoken about this a couple of times, and I love this in the Passion Translation. It says, And we who have come to Jesus, who established a new covenant, with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven. That in itself is so powerful that the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat continues to speak from heaven today. That's not speaking from the cross. That's not speaking from the ground around Golgotha. That's not speaking from an empty tomb. The blood is speaking from heaven. And it's speaking forgiveness, a better message than Abel's blood that cries out from the earth justice. Right? The New Living Translation of that passage is the blood speaks a better word, which perhaps you've, you've heard a number of times. The blood speaks a better word. So the blood of Jesus that was sprinkled in front of the throne of God, it continues to speak from heaven today. And so as believers in Jesus, I just, as I said, this has transformed my own kind of perspective and how I approach God. That realizing that as I begin to approach the throne room of heaven, as I come into the very presence of God, there's blood before the throne and it's speaking forgiveness, acceptance, Belonging, redemption, salvation. So when you go and approach God himself, the blood continues to speak today. We don't need to worry about the mistakes that we've made in the past. We don't need to be held back by whatever other bondage or things that have been holding us back from coming into the presence of God. Because when we begin to walk in, there's blood that's speaking forgiveness, redemption, acceptance, salvation. And the choice for us really is, what voice are we going to listen to in our lives? And that will dictate how we respond to circumstances and situations. Because Hebrews 12, 24 also says that the blood of Abel is still crying out. Genesis 4 tells us that's crying out from the ground. And the question is, do we have our ear to the ground or do we have our ear to the throne? Do we have our ear to the ground or do we have our ear to the throne? The voice of what blood are we listening to? There's one that's speaking vengeance shameful, rejected, and there's one that's speaking forgiveness, redemption, and acceptance. And ultimately, we need to choose whether we're going to be listening to the voice 
of the world around us or whether we're going to be people who are living from the throne room of heaven and the reality of all that Jesus has done for us. And just as we wrap this up, I think it's the ascension of Jesus and his blood on the throne of heaven that enables us to not only go right into the presence of God, but to do so with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, that we can hold tightly to the hope that we have because we know our redemption is secure and that God can be trusted to keep his promise. I can't help but think, you know, my my faith in trusting God to keep his promises is enriched if I know that my redemption is secure and that there's no further offering to be made for any of my mistakes or my sins. I can see that God's heart would be to want to fulfill his promises in my life because that blood is still speaking. Yes, he's forgiven. Yes, he's redeemed. And so that promise I can hold on to in a fresh way, in a new way, with greater faith because no longer is there any offering that I need to serve up or no longer do I need to worry about somehow proving myself again. But the blood is still speaking and continues to speak from heaven. And that's my prayer for all of us, that God ultimately would just release a deeper revelation of the ascension of Jesus in our hearts and in our lives. As I said, this I feel like is just the beginning. There's so much more. And I've even touched on the promise that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That ultimately, because we're in Christ, we're seated at the right hand of the Father, but we haven't even touched on on any of that. There's so much more that we could go into. But hopefully, by journeying through that, we begin to see all that took place when Jesus ascended and what that can mean for us as believers in the life that we live. That not only would we have a, a greater boldness in approaching God, but also we would grow in our trust and our faith and our hope in Him, knowing that His blood still speaks. And it's speaking forgiveness over each and every single one of us.